Let's pray together, church. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us today, and we ask, dear Lord, that you would use your word uh, to enlighten our minds and to enlarge in our hearts. Uh, give us humble spirits to receive, rebuke, challenge, comfort us uh, through your word here in Hosea 6. We commit these things to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, church, welcome to another week of our sermon series in Hosea. We're up to chapter 6 now, and we're going to continue on the topic of repentance. Last week, Clement really helpfully introduced the concept and the concern for repentance through chapter 5, and this theme is further drilled down in Hosea 6. But here, we introduce a very new danger, a new threat to the vitality and the flourishing of God's people. Hosea 6 targets the issue of false repentance. False repentance. False repentance is a tragic and terrifying travesty. It is an attempt to pretend like we are sorry for our sins, pretend like we worship the God of the Bible, and pretend like we are the people of God, when really all this pretense does is damage and destroy our souls and of those around us. Now we know this passage is talking about repentance because that's how the chapter begins. Hosea uh, chapter 6 verse 1 Hosea calls upon the people of the Lord, come, let us return to the Lord. The word return here means to repent, to turn around from the path of sin, rebellion, and destruction, and to return or to turn to God instead. Now, what's really interesting is that God's people in Hosea 6 really seem to repent and return. Uh, but a closer examination of the text shows that they were offering something very different. At Grace Point, we need to listen very closely because this is a word for us today as well. False repentance damages and destroys, but real repentance really restores. False repentance damages and destroys, but real repentance really restores. Come to point one with me as we explore the sort of false repentance which God's people were offering. Look at what verse 4 says. Look at your Bibles with me. It says, Your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. Uh, you see what's going on here? Israel and Judah do express love for God. They do repent. They do put their trust in God, but it's fickle and momentary like the morning mist or the early dew. There for just a minute, and gone the minute after. It, it looks refreshing, but it evaporates and disappears as soon as the warmth of the sun appears. At church, this is describing half-hearted false repentance. Repenting, but not really persevering in that direction. Saying all the right words, but meaning none of it. We also notice this is a problem from verse 6. Look at verse 6 with me. It says that God desires mercy and not sacrifice, acknowledgement of God and not burnt offerings. You know, what's implicit in this text is that God's people were laying forth burnt offerings. They were giving sacrifices to God. In other words, they were engaged in all the right acts of worship that looked like a life of repentance, but it was all fickle and fake. Church, do you see how this is relevant for us today? Because aren't we also in danger of doing the very same thing? Uh, to come along to a church like this, to sit through the sermons, to sing along to the songs, to know your Bible, to maybe even lead and serve and 
Maybe pray along with our weekly prayer of confession, yet be guilty of false repentance? Now, here's the interesting question, though. Why did Israel offer false repentance? And why are we inclined to do the same? Now, what's the heart behind it? If you have your outlines, you can look at point 1A with me, because what you'll see is a false repentance is basically spiritual quid pro quo. It's an attempt to get God to owe you a favor so that you can ask for something in return. It's basically a say to God, God, look at me, I'm doing all the right things, so let's hope you remember when I need to call in this chit or cash in this favor when the time comes. And now this chit or this favor looks like different things, doesn't it? We may say, oh really, um, I think I can get away with this sin or that sin. Because I do so much for God, I give so much to God. I mean, that's what Israel thought, right? Hosea tells us that they were engaged in outright idolatry and pagan worship, clear rebellion against God, but they somehow thought that their sacrifices and their burnt offerings were sufficient to appease God's wrath. Uh, It sounds insane when you think about it, right? We think, oh, come on, Israel, surely not. Surely you did not think that God will be okay with all of this as long as you throw him some crumbs. And yet we do the same, right? We try to manipulate God with our church attendance, with our ministry, with our money, with our projection of godliness, with our time, with our so-called Christian lifestyle, with our smiles, thinking that in exchange, God would somehow approve or at least turn a blind eye to the sinful desires of our hearts. It's works righteousness, thinking that our performance or our actions can merit our salvation. Church, false repentance is basically a screen or a veneer we hide behind in order that we can do whatever else we want in our lives. It's exchanging favor for something else, which is why false repentance is actually damaging. It's damaging to multiple parties. It's firstly damaging to the individual who is offering false repentance. It gives them the illusion that they are saved when they are probably outside the kingdom of God. Jesus speaks of this in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 to 23, right? If you remember that passage, these were people without signs of religiosity. Outward signs of religiosity, but inward signs of unbelief. They say to Jesus, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we perform miracles in your name? Wow, such godly and amazing things, right? Prophesying, casting out demons, performing miracles. Surely this is a godly person. The modern day equivalent for us is, Lord, didn't I serve you as a leader at church? Didn't I give money for the advancement of the gospel? Didn't I help those in need? Jesus will say to all who do this but offer false repentance, I never knew you, you evildoers. False repentance gives false assurance. And false assurance is no assurance. Those offering false repentance may think that they are fooling everyone, including God, but really the biggest fools is themselves. But it's also damaging to others, isn't it? Because you see, those who offer false repentance often have a deep sense of insecurity and fear. 
And so they are really concerned about how they appear. They're concerned with how others see them. And so they compensate by projecting an impressive image of godliness to people around them. So like the Israelites, right? They do all the right things, but not for God this time, for others. But they hurt others because this false repentance often comes with a form of manipulation, gaslighting, and lying to get others to believe in a false version of themselves. And church, manipulation is a subhuman way to treat others. Manipulation is always a sin. Manipulation violates trust, vulnerability, and truth, all of which are essential building blocks to a flourishing relationship. It hurts people. But you know, it's also damaging because it takes that sacred trust and it takes advantage of others. It uses the trust that others have in us to cover up sin and to continue in sin. I want to give you two examples of this. The first is from our text. Look at verses 8 to 9 with me if you have your Bibles. Remember the background now, right? God's people were doing all the right things, all the right acts and rituals of worship. But then verses 8 to 9, look at it with me. They are also described as evil doers whose footprints were stained with blood. This speaks of violence. They are marauders or raiders waiting to ambush the weak and the vulnerable. They are described as murderers who carried out wicked schemes. Did you see? They used their false repentance as a shield or as an excuse to commit these sinful and wicked deeds. And so in verse 10, all of these things are described as horrible atrocities. So much so that in verse 11, God says that a harvest is appointed. Now the word harvest here is not speaking of a positive future. All throughout the Old Testament, the word harvest is a figurative term for judgment and punishment. Joel chapter 4 verse 13, Jeremiah 51 33, harvests are described as a time of reckoning. A time when the wheat will be separated from the chaff. When the righteous who will have earned their reward of eternal life through Christ and where the unrighteous have the consequences of eternal judgment and punishment. That will be separated. That's what the time of harvest looks like. So here in Hosea 6.11, we see that the evil of Israel is so great that God is saying judgment is coming. And yet the Israelites thought that the false repentance gave them the license to continue in sin. I want to give you a more contemporary example. Uh, These are hard to speak of, but they're necessary. Uh, And it's especially critical because Hosea 6 verse 9 also targets the leaders of Israel. And so that's super relevant for us today. Uh, One of the things you're familiar with and probably perhaps a bit sick of hearing um, is the moral failure of pastors or Christian leaders. I don't have to name names from the pulpit because you know it too well. And one of the common responses to these moral failings is, what? I can't believe it. How could Pastor A, Evangelist B, Leader C do something like that? They lead a successful ministry. They seem so sincere. They're kind. They're generous. Their preaching is so powerful. How could they possibly be sexually immoral, embezzle funds, assault, Plan an assassination. 
take advantage of children and girls and continue in the ministry for years, if not decades. The examples I gave are not hypothetical, they are real. Don't you see? False repentance gave the illusion that it was all okay. And this false repentance also created this buffer that made people think, oh my goodness, there must be a really good explanation for why the leader is doing something like this. You know, that's why it's really common for victims of abuse to firstly blame themselves. Because look at all the leaders, right? There is this projected image of godliness and sainthood. So if the problem is not them, then it must be me. And this buffer where there is so much of benefit of a doubt allows this sort of damage and destruction to go unchecked until it all blows up and God's judgment is poured out. Church, listen very closely. False repentance is not just a minor inconvenience. False repentance, in the words of Hosea 6, is evil. It is wicked. It is vile. It is a foolish attempt to manipulate a God who cannot be manipulated. It's a foolish attempt to manipulate ourselves, who are probably silly enough to believe our own lies. But it's an evil attempt to take advantage of others or hiding behind this thin veneer of fake godliness. If you have suffered at the hands of an abusive Christian leader, I want to give you comfort and confidence that God is personally angered by it. So that even if your whistleblowing doesn't work, know and believe that God will vindicate you and bring about justice. And listen closely, if you are suffering at the hands of an abusive leader here at Grace Point, I want to encourage you to speak to someone you trust. Shine a light on darkness because our church will never thrive if we are weighed down by wickedness that is thriving in the dark. But you see, I don't have to speak in the abstract or the distant, right? Because this is true of your own lives. How many people have you hurt from your false repentance? And have you been hurt by those who are guilty of false repentance? No wonder God sees it as a wicked and vile thing. False repentance is spiritual quid pro quo, but it's also damaging and it's also never truly satisfying. And I want to say that this is perhaps punishment in and of itself, right? Because, you know, those who are guilty of false repentance are some of the loneliest and most isolated people I've ever met. And these are the necessary consequences. Because, you see, repentance comes with manipulation. And manipulation means that people around you will never know you for who you really are. They only know you for how you present yourself. So it doesn't matter how busy your social calendar is, you will never be truly known and never truly loved for who you really are. You've effectively cast yourself out of deep relationships. But you know what? Others will cast you out as well. Because you see, manipulation always leads to fractured relationships. And listen closely. Make no mistake. Your showmanship will catch up on you. Sin always catches up on you. You may think that you are getting away with it because no one has said anything. No, a time of judgment will come and you will have to burn all of your relationships in order to keep up this facade. 
you will be cast out by others who feel like you can no longer be trusted. And at the end of the day, when there's no one around, you will realize that you have no deep relationships with people, no real awareness of who you are because you've been so busy acting this whole time, and significantly no relationship with God because you've been too busy trying to control Him. You'll feel empty behind the smile, lost behind the cheers and the applause, and crushed by the emotional and relational distance. That's the fruit of sin. False repentance damages and destroys. But real repentance really restores. As you come to point two with me, this is why what we see, uh, what God asks for, is surprisingly simple. He's asking for real repentance. Repentance that's not trying to come across as more godly than you really are. Repentance that's not on about impressing others. Repentance that is not manufactured or forced, but a real, genuine awareness of our own sin, our tendency and disposition towards sin, and a real trust and understanding of the grace that is offered by God through Jesus Christ. Now I want to say it's surprisingly simple, and that's because it is. But at the same time, real repentance takes a lifetime to practice and to live out. But, but, but here's how it's simple. Hosea 6 tells us that real repentance looks like two things. It's there in verse 6. Look at your Bibles with me. Hosea 6, 6. That's easy to remember, right? He's asking for mercy, and he's asking for knowledge of God. Can you imagine that? Real repentance is not a 10-step recovery program. It's two very simple things. Uh, but let's dig a little deeper to understand what those two things are. Firstly, let's look at mercy, right? Now, the word you see in verse 6 comes from a Hebrew word, which many of you have heard of, and it's the word hesed. Hesed. And if you remember what I've said about hesed in the past, then you remember that this is a word that's difficult to translate. Uh, partly because it means so many things and their definitions have so much overlap with each other. Uh, that's why uh, different English translations render the word hesed in verse 6. Even verse 6, they render it differently. If you have the NIV, it says mercy. If you have the ESV, it says steadfast love. If you have the CSB, it says faithful love, uh, which is right. Well, you see, they are all correct. Because contextually, I think Hosea has used this word with all of its meaning in mind. And I'll explain more why that is the case in just a moment. Uh, but you see, if you know the word hesed, if I said that when you're like, oh yeah, I've heard that before, then it's probably because you've heard that word in the context of God's hesed, God's mercy, God's steadfast love towards us as his people. Think of passages like Exodus 34, verses 6 to 7. This is in your outlines, right? It's a very common passage. It says, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in chesed, and faithfulness, maintaining chesed to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. We're familiar with that concept, aren't we? But then here in chapter 6, verse 6, it's speaking of the people's has said, not God's, but the people's. Now, how does that work? 
Now, you see, when God made a covenant and entered into a relationship with His people, both sides of the parties made a promise. God promised to show has said to His people faithfulness, love, commitment, and unceasing compassion. But likewise, His people were to do the same. They were not to turn to other gods. They were to show faithfulness to God and faithfulness to God's commandments. Now, that's really important, right? Because God's people were not just to pledge allegiance and to promise faithfulness to God. They were also to promise faithfulness to God's commands. Commands to act justly. Commands to show mercy to God's people. Micah chapter 6, verse 8 says this, right? Again, it's in your outlines. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love has said. And to walk humbly with your God. These are two sides of the Hasset coin, if you can imagine that. One side is trust and worship of God. And the other side is to treat others with mercy and with dignity. Uh, yeah, this is exactly where Israel failed. They were unfaithful by worshipping pagan gods. They were unfaithful by taking advantage and hurting those around them. That's what we see in verses 8 to 11. And so church, part of real repentance is to show said once more. That's what God desires. It's to say to God, God, we promise that we would show faithful love to you. We've broken that promise and so now we repent by worshipping you again, but also loving others like we said we would. Church, here is a very important dynamic. Lean in real close with me. Real repentance accompanies real action. Real repentance accompanies real action. In the Bible, real repentance is not just words. It is a willingness to restore that which is broken. What Hosea 6.6 is saying is that real repentance is not just confessing and being forgiven by God. That faithfulness and repentance will be seen in action in how we treat others. It is to live out the full and expansive meaning of said in relational context. To show mercy, compassion, grace, and kindness to others. That's what a heart that is touched by God does. Now, there is more than real repentance, isn't there? Verse 6 tells us there's another component to it. Now, it's to have knowledge of God. Now we spent an entire chapter and sermon on knowledge of God a few weeks ago. Uh, You'd be welcome to listen to the sermon in Hosea 4 just to get up to speed. But what God is calling for here is real repentance. Real repentance ought to include an earnest desire to know God through His Word in order that we may love God in accordance to His Word. It is to allow Holy Scripture to saturate our minds, to shape how we think, how we feel, how we respond to the world around us in a way that is grounded in the Word. It is to acknowledge God as the Creator, Sustainer, and Savior of all things and to worship Him as such. It is to say, if God says that I should do it, I will do it. Even if it's inconvenient, even if it's costly, even if it's uncomfortable, that's what it means to know God. 
The passage is saying there is no point making burnt offerings when you don't listen, submit to, and obey God's word. All of those are just acts. Anyone can do it. Church is the same for us today, right? We may do all the right Christian rituals, but are we willing to search and study the word in order to submit to the word? It's really easy, isn't it? Acting on Sunday. Acting on Wednesday, acting on Friday for just a couple of hours. But do you really think that God can be fooled? To do anything less than total submission is Christian showmanship. And so Hosea 6 6 is helpful, isn't it? Because this here is just another way of rearticulating Jesus' teaching in Matthew 22, verse 37 to 40. Jesus says this, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Here is a simple summary of real repentance. Loving God as he is known through his word and loving neighbor in accordance to his will. Do you see? False repentance isolates us from God and from others. Real repentance reunites us to God and others. False repentance damages and destroys, but real repentance really restores. Now, you know, church, I'm not going to pretend like real repentance is easy. In fact, the reason why false repentance is so common is because it's the easier option. False repentance is a cheap imitation of real repentance, to be sure. And you know what? Like all cheap imitations and knockoffs, false repentance is more accessible and less demanding. And it looks good enough to pass off as the real thing. But like any sort of cheap imitation, it has the facade of the real thing without the benefits of the real thing. You know, you could wear a fake pair of Gucci shoes and fool others into thinking you're a Gucci man, you're a Gucci woman, but you'll never experience the comfort of a real pair of genuine Gucci shoes. Not that I know anything about it, right? I'm more of an LV kind of guy. No, no, I'm kidding. I can't even spell LV, right? This is why our passage doesn't say, you fools, stop pretending. It doesn't just say that. Our passage doesn't say, just get good and do the real thing. It doesn't. Instead, our passage highlights the beauty of God's promises when we offer real and humble repentance. Our passage shows us we don't have to settle for cheap imitations. It shows us a better way. And that's actually how the chapter begins. Verse 1, Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but He will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. Hosea is here, as mentioned, calling upon Israel to repent and to turn back to God. But as he does this, Hosea draws attention to the lengths which God has gone to draw us back. Hosea says, God has torn him into pieces, but he will heal. Injured, but will bind up their wounds. This tells us, church, that sometimes... God will destroy some things before He rebuilds it once more. It could mean destroying proud and hardened hearts. 
destroying destructive patterns and relationships, destroying idols and false worship. This destruction process is often, if not always, painful. But because of our sinful and hardened hearts, God has to sometimes break down before He can build up. God has to sometimes break down before He can build up. Because see, all throughout the history of Israel, God in His patience and kindness has consistently drawn people to Himself by lavishing mercy upon mercy, blessing after blessing, grace upon grace, and yet God's people had shown themselves to be incapable of knowing how to respond to God's kindness. They take God's mercy and patience and they worship false gods and idols instead. That's the point of Hosea. And so you could say that periodically God changes His strategy. Periodically, God allows sin to run its own course, to show people the depravity of their own condition, and to highlight their need for God. You see, for Israel, this is seen when God handed them over to Assyria and to Babylon. For us, this can be seen when God does not intervene in our destructive paths or patterns. This is seen when God allows us to have what we want. Because what we want is exactly what ruins us. This is what happens. This is what it means for God to tear us apart or to injure us. He spells out the consequences of our sin and foolishness. And if we persist in that, He allows us to hurt ourselves in the process. But church, you see, the good news is, the promise is always that He will heal all who return to Him. He will bind up the weak and weary who have been disillusioned by the false promises of this world. He will warmly accept and cure all who have wandered from the path. He will tend to our pain and disappointments. He will rebuild us. This is for anyone, anyone who truly, humbly, and really repent of their sin and trust in Jesus. Don't you see? False repentance damages and destroys, but real repentance really restores. Another particular area of restoration is our lives. Look at verse 2. After two days, He will revive us. On the third day, He will restore us that we may live in His presence. Now, two to three days is roughly the time it takes for the decomposition of a corpse to set in. And so one of the things that Jose is trying to communicate is that God will revive and restore people who are really dead. Not just sick, not just bedridden, but those who are really lifeless. You could say they are so dead that they have decomposed. But those of you who are familiar with Scripture will also know that it's virtually impossible to read the expression, the third day, without thinking of Jesus. Paul writes, 1 Corinthians 15 verse 4, He, Jesus, was raised on the third day in accordance with Scripture. And so sure enough, almost every reference to salvific or restorative events on the third day in Scripture always foreshadows the work of Jesus Christ, who died in our place but was raised on the third day for our eternal life. Church, this tells us two very important things. You ready? Firstly, the restoration of life that is promised in verse 2 is speaking of the new life that comes from forgiveness 
and reconciliation with God. That anyone, regardless of sin and shame, guilt and sorrow, pain or burden, can come to Jesus today and be saved. But second of all, and this is very important, it emphasizes that this restoration is for the spiritually dead. Like really dead. Like lifeless and decomposed body spiritually dead. Now church, I don't know if you realize this, right? But this is wonderful, magnificent, and incredible news. Because don't you see, one of the fundamental reasons for false repentance is the fear of coming face to face with the true state of our own condition. The fear of facing up to our own insecurities. The fear of seeing ourselves for the utter sinners that we really are. Isn't that true of your own life? Like if you had a really honest and humble look about your heart, there is a real chance that you don't like what you see. You know the sort of evil that your heart is capable of. You know how desperate you are to be known and loved, and you will do anything to get it. You know how needy you are, and if there were no boundaries, you would do almost anything to get what you want. That terrifies us. And so we work hard to hide it, to cover it, to misdirect people's attention away from it. But church, don't you see? God is not afraid of what He sees in your heart. He sees the muck. He sees the spiritual decomposition. He sees the stink. And in His grace and mercy, He says, I can revive that. I can restore that. I can cleanse that. I can cure that. I can bring you back to life again. False repentance is an attempt to clean ourselves up. But real repentance really restores. Church, isn't this infinitely better than all the other sorts of cheap imitations that are on offer for us? But there's more, isn't there? God offers blessings to be enjoyed. You see, verse 3 speaks of sun, winter, spring rains. All of these are references to nourishment, right? Uh, Those of you with backyards or front yards know that you basically need two ingredients for a thick and beautiful lawn, sun and rain, right? In the same way, Hosea is illustrating what it's like to be restored to God through real repentance. It's like being nourished by the sun and rain. This is language of satisfaction and renewal. But what's more, passages like Deuteronomy 11, Leviticus 26, consistently speak of rain as a tangible expression of God's blessing. You know, this is especially the case for agricultural societies, right? How else will our crops grow apart from sun and rain? You know, I think we in Australia get this. We have, throughout our history, consistently been plagued by droughts. And so there's an anxiety that comes around that, right? Or anxiety from your mother because she tells you, stop using the water so much, right? So it's just a little fear. But remember what happened when we had that period of intense rain and the Warragamba Dam was filled? Man, that anxiety was lifted. You started washing your cars again, right? A sense of stability was restored. Verse 3, God says, I will shower you with blessings. 
on all who turn and repent. Now you see, these blessings are expansive. There is just so much, right? But if we were to connect that with some of the themes we've raised today, we could say that God's blessings come in the form of real assurance instead of false assurance of faith. A deep sense of acceptance rather than this perpetual insecurity that which drives us to seek approval and attention from people we know don't really matter anyway. It comes in a form of real and, and joyful, progressive growth in godliness rather than a dissatisfying thin veneer of fake godliness. It comes in a form of real forgiveness for real sins rather than sweeping things under the carpet. It comes in a form of real restoration from brokenness rather than having to run from the past and start afresh once more. And now I said there is so much more because the sort of blessings that verse 6 speaks of also actually comes in a form of material provision. It comes in a form of spiritual joy. It comes in a form of relational wholeness. It comes in a form of political peace, cultural harmony, all the rest of it. This here is actually a promise of the sort of shalom or peace that the Bible promises and speaks of consistently. And real repentance is the gateway to all of that. Even if we don't get to experience it all in its fullness here on earth. But don't you see? God's promises for us are so, so good. God loves us too much to allow us to settle for false repentance. That's why His word to the Israelites in verse 1 is the same word for us today. Grace point, do not harden your hearts. Let us return to the Lord. Let us repent, for through it is healing for our hurts and restoration for our lives. So why don't we conclude and see if we can land in a few very practical places that will be helpful. Firstly, I believe our passage is calling upon us to resist, to reject, and to repent of false repentance. You see, my hope and prayer is that we have been sufficiently warned from Hosea chapter 6. That we know the dangers and the destructive nature of false repentance, not just for ourselves, but also for people around us. And maybe this is the first time you've become aware that you have been falsely repentant. Maybe you've been doing it your whole life and you think that you can get away with it. I pray that we as a church would heed the warnings of Scripture and be deeply moved by God's grace to make a commitment to resist false repentance. That we may make a commitment today to say, I'm done with this charade because what God has to offer me is infinitely better. I'm taking that instead. Resisting could also look like engaging in a very serious process of self-examination and say, hey, you know what? If I'm not taking repentance seriously, then maybe I'm not taking sin and grace seriously. And if I'm not taking sin and grace seriously, then am I actually a follower of Jesus or am I a fraud? This is a scary and terrifying train of thought. But Hosea 6 positions us to ask that. And we can ask it because the alternative 
is a grace-motivated, mercy-saturated, love-fueled, real repentance which Christ offers to all of us today. But you know, if you've been guilty of false repentance and you know you've hurt people in the process, then repenting of false repentance also means seeking forgiveness from those you've hurt. You cannot say, oh well, God has forgiven me, I've prayed the prayer. No, real repentance requires real action. And that means humbling ourselves and asking those we've damaged for forgiveness. We cannot expect that forgiveness, but we can show them our real contrition and make ourselves vulnerable to their decisions. You can repent of false repentance today because the gospel is offered to you today. Second of all, I want to encourage us to once again engage in the frequent act of confession and repentance. To do this not just on Sundays as part of our worship liturgy, but also in your life. Because as I've said before, there is something profoundly healing, sanctifying, renewing, and restorative to confession and repentance. Because we get to come to a God who loves us and accepts us. We get to be completely honest with Him without fear of judgment. Because all of that has been laid on Christ on our behalf. And we get to confess as a process of growing in godliness. We get to lay forth before God all the areas of lives that weigh us down, that injure ourselves, that hurt others, and we get to ask God for grace to grow. And so in your discipleship and community groups, in addition to asking each other, how's your Bible reading going? How's your prayer going? Why don't you ask one more question? Have you been confessing and repenting of your sins lately? Have you? You know, I think that this year, Confession is a truer mark of spiritual maturity. Because you can read your Bible and still be proud. You can pray and still be proud. I know all about that. But it's virtually impossible to repent and still be proud. Because repentance requires us to be spiritually vulnerable before the Lord. It causes us to come face to face with who we really are and ask God for forgiveness and grace. Can I press this and encourage you? to start planning time for confession and repentance in the rhythms of your life. Not to heap more guilt upon yourself, but to taste the sweetness of God's grace. This here is your key to battling with sin. This is the key for you to grow in grace. This is the key to growing in your assurance when you know that God knows you and loves you despite your spiritual deadness. This is the key to loving people around you. And so lastly, It'd be wrong to speak of real repentance without addressing the need for hesed, mercy to others. Now, in the context of Micah and Hosea, mercy to others is always loving those who are in weaker and more vulnerable positions. Now, when I say weaker, I don't mean that they are necessarily weak and feeble. Rather, they are weak because of their position of vulnerability. Because it's easy to take advantage of people in those states. Uh, in the Old Testament, those who fall under these categories are frequently widows and orphans. And if you know widows and orphans, there's nothing weak about them. They're some of the strongest and most resilient people in the world. But they're described as weak and lonely because it's easy to take advantage of them. 
how we treat them really matters. And the Bible emphasizes this because God knows that how we treat the lowly is directly correlated to the condition of our hearts. It's easy to be kind and generous to those who can benefit us in return. It's easy to be hospitable and sacrificial to those who will commend us and pat us on the back. But those with nothing to offer in return, when none of it is seen, when it's actually far easier to take advantage of them and maybe even get away with it, that's when true love is tested. That is when we see the real fruit of real repentance. You know, recipients of unmerited favor and grace know the importance of offering that. So in our contemporary context, we can ask, how are we treating the orphans and the widows? This continues to be a critical question. We also need to ask how we are loving those in more vulnerable positions in our society. I can think of those who are in our service and hospitality industries, who are often underpaid, overworked, and mistreated. How do we treat our waiters and waitresses? How do we treat our nurses and admin workers? Do we treat them like we own them? How do we show care to the mentally and physically disabled? These groups of people are often stomped on, disregarded, and taken advantage of. How we treat them is not irrelevant to our faith. It is intimately connected to the sort of hesed which God has shown us and the sort of hesed we are called to show as a mark of real repentance. Church, who are those in weaker and more vulnerable positions to you? Your real repentance can be seen through your genuine and grace-motivated love towards them. You know, one of the real signs that someone is a Christian is that your interactions with them helps you to see and understand who Jesus is. That's how you know someone's a Christian. That's what it means to be Christ-like, right? You know, I wonder if our church community will continue to grow in our impact when we show more grace, more tenderness, more compassion, more mercy to the weak and vulnerable. Maybe they'll walk away thinking, oh, that's what a Christian is like. They must have a great Savior. False repentance damages and destroys. Real repentance really restores. It restores our relationship with God. It restores our relationship with people around us. I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to invite the band to come and lead us in a few songs of response. But church, let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, we thank you so much for your word to us today. We recognize in humility our depravity and our sin and our brokenness, so depraved that we will work so hard to hide it, so, so depraved that we would do whatever it takes to continue in it. And so, Lord and God, we thank you for your word of warning and judgment in your word today. But we also thank you so much for the grace and the hope that is on offer. And so, Lord and God, we pray that as a church, we would not settle for cheap imitations, but run and cling to the real grace that is offered through repentance. Our Lord and God, would you please do the work of softening hardened hearts that still, despite hearing all this, continues to resist it. Spirit, do your work of transformation. Break down if necessary in order to build up. We commit these things to you in Jesus' name. Amen.